Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey people, how are we today? Good, good to see you. Welcome to CBC. If you've been around, then you know that every spring for the last five years when I took over, we dive into Matthew, and five years ago we started in chapter five, and today we're all the way up to chapter 12. Flying right along, everybody. It's going to be so good. So if you have your Bibles, open in chapter 12. In the next nine weeks, we're going to get through two chapters just about that'll lead us right up to Easter. And today, we get to have a chat about the relationship between rules and Christianity. So we're going to bring all our baggage this morning. Sound good to you? I'm going to bring mine, okay? We'll meet right here, right now. But before we get there, if you're new to CBC or not, we take a moment before we dive into the text and we acknowledge this space is different than the world outside of here. We live in a very critical and judgmental world because we say it, we are both prideful and insecure at the same time, and we have to take that out on those around us. We live in a culture that pushes dogmatism while also pushing subjectivity. My truth is the best truth you should live by. And in this space, right here, right now, we acknowledge that we are after the pursuit of God's goodness, of his scriptures. And we also acknowledge that what that looks like for followers of Jesus is oftentimes it looks like conviction over critique. What that means is this place is different than the world outside of us. We come to recenter our perspective around a God who should be the center of our perspective because he can carry the weight of the world. We can't. And so we simply acknowledge that the move of the spirit this morning is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And what that means for us is we're going to say, Holy Spirit, do a work in me this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to my spirit, my soul, not just because I want to know more about God, because I want to be more like Jesus. That's the goal today, as we talk about legalism in the church, that we might find a fuller, richer picture of the goodness of God and choose to walk in that direction because it's better. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray with us, and then we're going to dive in. God, today is good because you're good. Today is good because we have gathered together and simply said, it's worth our time to stop down and recognize the value of Jesus. As we do that today, Holy Spirit, guide our conversation, guide our thoughts, convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, give us joy throughout the entire process because both those things lead to the better way of Jesus. If you're comfortable, just Say a quick prayer to yourself and, and simply ask the Holy Spirit to, to speak to your spirit this morning because he's active and alive. I'd ask that you pray for me that I might do an adequate job portraying the goodness of God seen in our text this morning as Jesus talks about the bigger picture of what it means to follow him outside of just following rules. God, you're good. God, this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, 
I'm not sure what your baggage looks like, good and bad. We take it with us in church. But growing up, for me at least, as a kid to now, my faith used to be a lot more regulated by regulations. I wonder what your faith looked like when you were four, five, six, seven, or maybe you came to Christ later and what it looked like at 21 to 27. My point is simply, how has your faith grown? Growing up in high school and middle school and all the formative years, my faith was a lot of don't do's and a lot of do-do's. That wasn't right. A lot of don't do's and, <laughs> oops, and a lot of do these things. That's much, much better for the middle school kid and me. Um, go to church. Don't stay home on Wednesday night. Do listen to Christian music. Don't listen to Jay-Z and Eminem. Throw those CDs away, you know? Don't do bad things for the girlfriend or boyfriend. Do give room for the Holy Spirit when you're sitting on a couch. These rules that I lived by growing up, I'm sure you can fill in the blank with the ones that you have. Here's my question this morning and the text we're going to get into talks about this. What is the relationship between the followers of Jesus and rules? How do we see them rightly and righteously? And how do we not? Because I think societally, and especially in our expression of Christianity, evangelical Protestantism in the United States, we are never far off from legalism. We live in a meritocracy. What you do defines who you are. What you do defines your worth and value. What you do makes people happy, mad, sad, glad. And because that's the culture, the waters we're swimming in so often, we see God through that same filter, even though it's not true. Because I think societally we grew up too in a church culture that defined things in certain religious and regulatory ways because they wanted us to pursue righteousness. I was having some friends over on Friday because the whole hospitality series we did. Do you remember that? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, there are a couple I I married uh, about six months ago or so, good, good friends of ours. And then seen them a little bit and they came over and we were talking about our premarital experiences and they said, theirs was pretty bad at this church they go to. They just didn't get a ton out of it. And they met up with a couple and it didn't go well. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, you know, we went to this mass premarital space in Dallas a lot of people go to. And it's really great for a lot of reasons. But in the middle of that, I remember on, on week one, they have you sign this contract. And you're at this table with eight people. There's 400 people in a room. And there's nine stipulations to this contract. And one of them was, I think it's number three or four, that I will not kiss my fiance for longer than three seconds. And if I do, I have to tell my table leader, who I met seven minutes ago. (laughs) And I remember week two, the table leader said, hey, you haven't haven't signed that contract. I said, not going to do it, buddy. Not going to do it. I said, not that I don't think there's good intentions behind what you're saying. I just don't know you and I have people for that. And I don't know what that accomplishes. Three seconds, where? What counts as a second? What if there's tongue? There's all these questions. (laughs) We have to ask around rules, and rules for rules' sake often don't point to the right character of God. That's the conversation we're having this morning. So all I want to do as we walk through these 14 verses, these two-ish but same-day stories of Jesus, is ask the question, how do we know if our rules are righteous? How do we know if our regulations point to the good character of God, or how do we know if they've gone too far? And I'm going to give you two questions to ask. So application today is pretty simple. As we go through our life and our world, we ask two questions to see if our rules do the right job of pointing us to Jesus. Because here's the deal. When we fall into legalism, the natural response to that is to get rid of all rules. But I follow a God who said, hey, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light right before this passage, which means that my rules are less weighty than the rules of the Pharisees. But he also said that I came not to get rid of the rules, but to fulfill them. God's a fan of rules. Because rules can lead to righteousness. What's the tension between those things? 
How do we live into that as followers of Jesus? So this, the narrative starts like this today in chapter 12, one and two. We'll start there. At the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and they began to pick heads of wheat and eat them. But the Pharisees saw this and they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is against the law on the Sabbath. Let's define the parties a little bit. You know, Jesus, you know, his disciples at this point in Jesus's ministry, there started to be some conflict in Matthew, starting around verse chapter nine, excuse me. He did some things the Pharisees didn't like. And they started questioning his character and his nature. And it got more and more aggressive. And today, not to give away the farm, at the end of our story in verse 14, you see the first threat on his life. This is the story where the Pharisees said, we have to kill this man. This one right here in Matthew. And what happens when we challenge the power structure, when we challenge the rules, if we actually worship the rules and not the ruler, we're going to get there, is that when people threaten those things, we have to defend them. And we forget in the middle of that, there's something better. And, and, and so in the middle of this kind of heightened context of conflict that's going to push the disciples to see a different side of God outside of their Judaism, outside of the lens that they grew up in. It's going to grow them into better followers of Jesus, just like it does you and me. Outside of that is this challenge in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, around the idea of the Sabbath. And you got to understand something about Sabbath. It was the most important rule they had. So two ways to look at the Pharisees. And I think I've changed my perspective on Pharisees a bit. I've read a couple of books on it, and, and, and I think before I thought the Pharisees were just evil, mean people that use rules to hold on to power. And, and that might be true. I think there's some of that. I don't think that's a full view. I think that's an evil view. You've got to make somebody the villain, right? And, and when they're the villain, they can't be any good. But, but I think also if you read about the Pharisees, it's about 6,000 of them in the first century, and they were charged with upholding the law. When you look at the Pharisees, they, they not only thought the rules were important, they literally thought, that if we all keep the rules, if I keep the rules and you keep the rules and we live into all these laws God gave, then he'll save us. That's when it'll start. They thought living outside of the rules meant death. That's why there's this phrase called fencing the law that we talk about when you talk about the Jewish rules. And they had this law of God about Sabbath and then they built all of these rules outside of it because they didn't want to touch it because they thought if they broke that rule, it led to death. If they didn't, it kept them alive. When we moved into my house in Highland Village a year and a half ago, we had a pool for the first time and we had a, you know, a one-year-old and a, and a, well, a three-year-old and about a five-month-old, you know, that could not swim. Water is death. And the pool is right off of the outdoor door. And, and I didn't realize at the time that I could buy something on Amazon for $9 and fix the problem. So instead, every single night, I would, I would stack furniture by that back door just in case my three-year-old got up, ate spinach and popped her way through the dining room table and all the chairs and all my weight set, you know? Because I was terrified. I was terrified that if she got too close to this thing, it was going to be bad news for her and I loved her and for our family and I loved them. And so they built, like I did, this fence around the law. My point here is simple, that I think the Pharisees thought their salvation was tied into how they kept the law. And if that's true, if the suffering ended because they were better people on the Sabbath, then wouldn't you fight for that kind of life for those around you too? What it does is it allows us to look back on these people with compassion and not just malice. What it does when we see the best intention in a law they tried to keep, even if we disagree with it, is it allows us to look back on those rules and the people that enforce those rules and find some kind of compassion instead of condemnation. It allows us to move from bitterness to joy. 
It allows me to look back on the three-second rule of premarital and say, hey, maybe they had good intentions. And in a world, in a world of people that are just trying to break down what happened in our past for the worst possible reasons, it gives us an ability to move beyond them because we've seen the best in them. I might not agree with a lot of the purity movement in the 1990s for Christianity. I believe in purity. I think the outworking of it was a little rough sometimes, but I think the intentions are really good. And with that, what's really important about that is you probably come to this faith with some rules and some baggage. And what happens if we look back and don't just deconstruct for malice sake, but we look back with compassion and grace and say, man, they tried to do something really good. Might not have been perfect, but they tried. Doesn't mean we celebrate it. Doesn't mean we keep going. It does mean we can move on from with a, a spirit of forgiveness and compassion. That's how I see the Pharisees. Are they wrong in this text? Yes, they are. Were they trying to do right? Yes, I think they were. And that, that's the, the crux of it. Is where is that line between trying to do right and then stopping doing right because they're trying too hard to do right through the wrong mechanism? So it says that they're going on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees got mad. And just so you guys know, the Sabbath was a big deal. We talked about it. When Jesus broke it, it wasn't just one of the small ones. The Sabbath literally defined who they were as a people. It was the covenant law for the Abrahamic covenant, for the Mosaic covenant. Of all the 500 and change laws given to Moses on the mountain and over time, this was the one that symbolized all of them. This was the practice that God gave before he gave all the other practices to his people. This was the one that set them apart from everybody else. If you're going to break one, Jesus went for the big one here. And so what they did because they didn't want to break this one was they derived or constructed 39 categories around this idea of Sabbath in the first century. Not 39 laws, 39 categories of laws around what it looks like to keep the Sabbath. So it means by fencing in. This had nothing to do with sin. It had everything to do with don't get near what we define sin as being. And so because I want you to get your money's worth today, I'm going to read all 39, okay? I'm going to do it actually for real because I want you to see something here. I want you to see one, the, the totality of it, the oppressiveness of it, and the seriousness with, with, seriousness with which they took Sabbath. So I'm going to read them fairly quickly. Here are the categories of laws you couldn't break or you'd broke Sabbath. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain, stitching, wrapping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and marking. Everybody. And you're saying, what could I do? I don't know. Lay there and look alive, you know? (laughs) God is good. God is good. God is good. There wasn't, one wasn't against travel, but they made one against travel. It said you can go 2,000 cubits in a day, but a half mile. If you walked a step over 2,000 cubits, you officially were working. Stop it. You've sinned, you know? So Jesus steps in this moment and he says to his disciples, hey, you can pick some wheat because the disciples followed the lead of their leader. You can pick some wheat. And this broke harvesting rules. This broke, broke, broke um, reaping rules. This broke uh, winnowing rules. This broke several rules that they had in their Sabbath. And so the Pharisees see this in their response. Look at verse three or verse two. Look at your disciples and look what they're doing. They're doing what against the law they're doing the Sabbath. Very serious. In some of these instances, they could actually have you thrown in prison or killed because of it. And Jesus' response, he says, haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? How he entered the house and he ate the sacred bread, which was against the law for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. So Jesus responds, 
when he says you're breaking the law with two stories, both from the Old Testament, one from the Old but Happening Now Testament. One was David. This is from 1 Samuel 21. He's on the run from Saul. They're not in a good place in their relationship. He stops by this temple at Nob. Uh, essentially, they had been taken over by the Philistines, so the temple moved, and he goes to the priest there. And I knew who David was. And he says, the king told me that we're supposed to eat some food. We're really, really hungry. And so the priest said, I only have the bread of presence. And David said, that'll do. And just so you guys know, if you read through the Old Testament a little bit, in the temple, there is a place called the Holy Place. In the holy place, there were three elements. There was an altar, there was a lampstand, and there was the showbread, the bread of presence. There were 12 loaves made weekly by a certain tribe of Israelites only to be eaten by the priests at the end of that week because it showed you that God is all you need to sustain. It reminded them of what he did in the desert. That's why when Jesus comes, I think it's John 8, and said, I'm the bread of life, all Israelites went to that moment, that place, that specific connotation and said, he's this thing that's in the holy place? Who is this man? It's only to be eaten by the Levitical tribe, only, only at the end of the week. Very high righteousness, high priestly, high church stuff. And they give this bread to David and nobody mentions it. They say that it's okay because he's David. Jesus brings us up because he's saying, man, we've already broken this law before of eating on the Sabbath. And this was a way more egregious claim and we're fine with it. We teach it to our kids. Seemingly, you don't understand. And what he's doing here is tying himself to David, saying, if David can do it, he's going to say it in a second, do you know who I am? I've told you in Matthew 9, 10, and 11. I've told you what I came to do. You've seen it manifested by my healings and my prophecies and my miracles. You've seen it before. Do you understand who I am? You said it's okay for David. Do you not get that it's okay for me too? You've already broken this idea once and it's been just fine. Why now? Why now are you unwilling to see that it's worthy of breaking your law again? And then he gives him another example. And he says in the following text, have you not read the law about the priests in the temple and they desecrate the Sabbath and they are not guilty? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. This comes from Numbers 28, 9 and 10. So you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath when the laws were under the slaughter. And on the Sabbath, the priests had to slaughter two animals to make up for a day. And so they literally worked on the Sabbath. They broke their own law on the Sabbath. They got a special exemption. So what Jesus is doing is saying, you're mad about this rule, but you, you, you've forgotten the person that gave the rule. You, you, you've separated the rule from the ruler, and in that, you've missed the point. So he says, I tell you the truth, something greater is here. Something greater is right here, right now. And he, here's the problem. Here's the first question we're going to ask this morning, is essentially, have you separated the rule from the ruler? Because they got in trouble because they no longer realize where the rule came from. And in essence, their rule became their ruler. That's a problem. That's legalism 101. And so a question we ask as we lead our families and try to pursue righteousness and try to enact rules is, do we remember who gave it in the first place? Do you remember? My daughter and I drive all over the place. And you know one of the worst things for me as a parent is the seatbelt beeping sound. You know that? because my daughter doesn't quite understand that I make the rules and that I can break the rules whenever I want to. And so I have this habit of taking off my seatbelt, like as we're turning on my street, it's about 30 yards, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm safe. And I will do that all the time, just out of habit. And every time my daughter's tried to do it once or twice to which I say, you are not allowed to undo your seatbelt. Just as a rule, she can't undo it because she will when we're going to the highway because there's a Cheerio on the ground, you know, um, and so I said, you're not allowed to. And now, I mean, the second, the second I undo my seatbelt in, in my car, it starts beeping. And my daughter starts yelling at me, dad, 
You are not supposed to undo your seatbelt until we're in the driveway and the car is parked. And I say, ah, uh, yeah, that, I guess that's right. Isn't that right, you know? And I want to say, no, I, I make the rules in this house. I don't know if you understand that yet. And I can break the rules when I want because there's a purpose behind it that you're not seeing. My daughter in that moment fundamentally is letting the rule become her ruler and missing the ruler in the middle of it. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. You know, when God gave the Old Testament, we sometimes see rules as regulation. God saw rules as compassion and mercy. When God gave the rules, if you remember the story, he gave the Ten Commandments, there was a bunch of others, Moses walked down, he saw the people in sin, you remember this moment, his face is all shiny and he gets really mad and he breaks them on the ground. Then he goes up to the mountain and he gets them again. And in that moment, God's angry, Moses is fighting for mercy, then Moses gets really angry because he finally sees what God saw and he goes back and he's like, I don't know. And, and this is God's response in the middle of that narrative, it's Exodus 34. God says this to describe himself. He said, and passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Here's the thing, if we divorce the rule from the ruler, we miss the very heart of God in the first place. And that's why Jesus finishes this first story by saying, if you'd known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. They had turned the ruler into their ruler instead of seeing the point and the purpose of the ruler and the rule in the first place. They, they, they'd missed it and they'd become a legalistic people. And, and what happens in that moment, what happened to them, they condemn the innocent, is their joy turned into bitterness. When we lose sight of the one who gave the rule and our rule becomes our ruler, what happens then is bitterness and condemnation in place of joy and compassion, what the law was supposed to inspire. When we divorce the rule from the, the ruler from the rule, our rules become our ruler. And in those moments, our joy is replaced with bitterness, anger, and malice instead of a holy conviction. We often act with hateful condemnation to those around us. And that's exactly what happened. That's why Jesus says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. You condemned the innocent. So when we talk about the relationship between rules and rule and how we grow up our faith and how it looks different than we were four and 40, it oftentimes comes down to this idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus. What, what, what guardrails and guides we have in place to lead us towards righteousness. And the first question we have to ask to guard off legalism is have we, have we fundamentally, in the little ways, every single day that we follow Jesus, in the rules that we put in place in our life, have we separated the rule from the ruler? And here's the problem. When we do that, when we rip those two apart, we lose the initial purpose and we, we find pain and not freedom in the law. We find a caricature of God and not the actual character of God. So these Pharisees were so adamant on keeping the rule, they forgot the purpose of it in the first place. It became a burden and not a delight. I know too many people that see following Jesus as a burden and not a delight because all this here are rules and not the ruler. I do. All this here are the do nots and not the guesses. what the freedom of the law brings. They see a caricature of the God that's unloving and unkind and unfun that sits up in the sky and just judges and condemns instead of one that says, I am compassionate and kind. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and joy and peace to generation after generation after generation when we don't see the ruler and instead are ruled by the ruler. People see a character of God who's condemning and who's bitter and who's judgmental and not loving and compassionate and merciful. Jesus is trying to break that. 
by saying, you, you're looking at me and you've missed it. Then he has another story right after that. It says, then Jesus left that place and he entered the synagogue same day. A man was there who had a withered hand and he asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they could accuse him. They asked the question so they could literally accusing him. They're baiting Jesus to do something so that they can get mad at him. They really didn't like Jesus at this point. They'd had enough. And said in verse 11, he said to them, would not any one of you If you had sheep that fell into a pit on Sabbath, take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? So in the Old Testament law, there was a stipulation that you couldn't work unless you were saving somebody's life and that you could do just what needed to be done to save their life. They wrote that in. It's like you could deliver babies and you can, again, if somebody was brutally uh, uh, injured, you could help them, but you couldn't do anything outside of what you had to do to keep them alive. And then on Saturday, on Sunday, or, you know, Monday in current context, because our Sabbath is Sunday, on Saturday, on Sunday, you could then do something about it. So this story is important for two reasons. One, this dude has a withered hand. He'd had it for a while. He was not going to die. Okay. There's in no ways his life threatened. If it was, Jesus could say, look, you believe this too, but rather, no. He says, no, his life's not in danger, but Jesus is about to heal this man and it's gonna cause them to challenge what they thought about the rule in the first place. And so what Jesus does is he says to them, hey, if your sheep falls into a pit, you're gonna get your sheep out on the Sabbath, even if they're not mortally wounded because you love your animals, because animals in agriculture were sources of income, because families had pets, or I'm sorry, we called them pets. They called them livestock. So <laughs> it's our culture, everybody. Um, they had livestock they could feed their families. They could sell the goods, agrarian societies. He says, you're going to get them out. At this point, actually, in the first century, there were several writings on the different Sabbath rules. They'd written in a stipulation that you were allowed to help out your injured animals on the Sabbath. And so Jesus said, If you can help out injured animals, why, oh why, do you think injured people are any different? When you worship the rule and not the ruler, you don't just miss the nature of God, you miss the purpose of what's there in the first place. What he does here is he makes an argument called a fortiori, which literally means uh, the lesser to the greater. You see it in Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds of the sky, and talking about worry, right? He says, look at the birds of the sky, think about the flowers and the fields that grow. If God clothes all of these in this resplendentness that is flowers and fields, then how much more are you valuable? Don't, don't you understand that God cares for you and sees you? So he, his context is, don't worry about what you're going to wear tomorrow, because look at what God clothes the flowers in, and God says, I love you so much more than roses. You have no idea. And so Jesus implores this arguing tactic a lot. He says, I love this thing. I love this thing. You are way more important. What does that speak about, about how much I love you? My favorite, my favorite example of this kind of argument, I've used it before. I'm about to use it again. So sit tight if you've heard it, is from Van Halen. And mostly because I just like to say Van Halen. I want to be like, oh, this is the church. Um, <laughs> True thing, that's not nearly the most offensive thing I've said this morning. Uh, so, so in Van Halen, in, in David Lee Roth's biography, he talks about, like, they, they were known for having a really strict writer on their concert venues. Writers being the things that you write to venues to say, do this my way. And some people now have really stringent writers. Like, I only want this kind of water, and the temperature has to be set to this degree, and I want these kind of chairs, and you have to do it. So uh, Van Halen, back in the day, in the late 70s, early 80s, was one of the first concert tours that actually had like a legitimate show. It wasn't just some music stands and a band and a guitar and a drum set. They had these elaborate sets that were really, really, really heavy. 
And so they had a writer in there that said, hey, we want a bowl of M&Ms, but none can be brown. And they got a lot of flack for that. And so they'd go to these venues and they'd look at the bowl. And if they'd say, and David Lee Roth talks about it in his biography, he says, if there were brown M&Ms in the bowl, we knew they didn't read the writer. And so everything else that was more important, they didn't get to. There were specific instructions on how to set the stage up and the bracing for the stage and how much weight the stage needed to have to be able to hold. And if you didn't read the part about the M&Ms, I guarantee you, you didn't care about the more important things. You didn't get to that section. So much so that they did a show in Pueblo, Colorado, and they literally fell through the floor because the people didn't read it. So the biography goes on to talk about there were some shows that if they saw brown M&Ms in the bowl, they'd just peace out and say, we're not doing the show. The whole point is there, if you cared about this thing that is inconsequential, how much more do you care about something so much bigger? God is saying here, Jesus is saying, if you care about animals in a way that you can break Sabbath, why don't you love people like that? You've forgotten the purpose of my laws in the first place. And so the first question we ask is, have we separated the rule from the ruler? The second question we ask that hopefully is a guardrail against legalism in a church that so often loves to be legalistic is not only have you separated the rule from the ruler, but have you separated the principle from the practice? Are those two things the same or are they different? Let me say it another way. Has the practice become more important than the principle behind it? These guys got 513 laws in Leviticus. And every one of them wasn't there just so God could see if they really loved him. It wasn't there just to test their obedience and to see if they really loved God with a lot of passion or a little passion. God gave laws because he loved his people and the laws were supposed to be a reflection of his character. Good parents do the same thing. I don't tell my daughter she can't eat chocolate in the morning because I hate her. I tell my daughter she can't eat chocolate in the morning because I know what sugar does to her and I still want to love her at 10 a.m., you know? Also cavities. And so when God gives laws, it's always in the Old Testament a mechanism of mercy for his people. One of my favorite examples on its face seemingly isn't merciful, but if you look into the first century context, it's very merciful. In Leviticus 24, this one's well known. Anyone who injures his neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who's inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So you look at that and you say, God's vindictive. If you punch me, I get to punch you. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose of that law in the Old Testament in, in, a, in a culture that always, in our culture is the same way. We elevate violence. So if you punch me, I want to hurt you more than you hurt me. It's always elevated. What he's saying is elevation stops. Revenge doesn't become more progressive because you're hurt physically and mentally and spiritually or anything else. So that rule in the Old Testament literally was to put an end to violence, not to perpetuate violence. In a culture that perpetuated violence by saying, you punch me, I kill your wife. You kill my goat, I kill seven goats. God's saying, that's not how my people function and flourish. You're allowed to take vengeance, but not in a way that, that, that keeps the vengeance ongoing. Jesus actually filled it in in Matthew 5, and he said, you've heard what it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. He's fulfilling the law by saying the point and purpose was this was mercy, not revenge. And so when we get into our text about what it means to actually live out the rules of God, we separate the rule from the ruler often and then the rule becomes our ruler, but secondarily, we have an ability to prioritize the practice over the principle. So last week, my daughter 
um, came up to me and she said, Dad, I did something. And I said, oh, okay. And, you know, we have rules in our house that all reflect how loving I am as a father. Uh, don't have to laugh. You'd say, great, uh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> like things like, hey, we're not going to hit each other. We're not going to yell. We're not going to steal. Going out of Whole Foods the other day and she stole a card. And she's like, look what I got. And I was like, let's go back in and give it back. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be little kleptos, all right, in the right now, our family. <laughs> and she said, I drew hearts all over the house on the walls and on the door frames and on our countertops and on the doors and on the chairs. These are wood things. These are quartz. These are expensive things. We just rent out our kitchen. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I looked at her and I said, <laughs> I, I, I got, my voice might have raised a couple decibels. And I said, what were you thinking? And I knew this was a washable marker, but I was going to make a point here because she clearly was disregarding the rule only to spite me because she's a wicked, wicked child because she's fallen like we believe, you know? And I said, what were you thinking? In what world did you think this was a good idea? Do you know that you're not supposed to write on anything but paper? And she just right then starts melting into a puddle of tears. And I thought, I've done something wrong. Father of the year is next year's prize, not this year's, you know? And she starts weeping and she says, I just wanted people to know as they walked through our house how much I loved them. So I wrote hearts all over the house. And I said, not good enough, clean it up. No, I'm kidding. I, I, said, I said, oh my, I, oh my goodness. I said, man, we don't write on things, but that is so sweet and that is so good. And let's go wash them off together and we can tell people they're loved. I should have responded differently because in that moment, you know, I was doing, I was prioritizing the fact that I could go around and wash off a washable marker instead of the fact that my kid was trying to do something that valued the principle of love way more than the practice of not writing on door frames. I can paint it, you know? It's a beautiful teaching moment that I missed because in that moment, the practice was way more important than the principle. I love what one author says. Freedom from ritual commandment need not lead to moral chaos, but within the kingdom of God imposes a responsibility far greater than any law could demand. He ends the story by saying, stretch out your hand. Verse 13, he stretched it out and he's restored as healthy as the other the hand was. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him as to how they could assassinate him. Because that's the right response to healing. You should die. Here's the conflict in the story. Jesus uses the law for redemptive purposes. The Pharisees use it as a means of retribution and wrath because they saw the, the law wrongly. The ruler wasn't their rule. Or the, the, the rule was their ruler. And, and they couldn't, they couldn't for the life of them they couldn't prioritize the principle over the actual practice. Here's what legalism does. It loses sight of the gospel because it stops looking at the person and the purposes of God. And it says, focuses on the other thing. This is not a conversation about sin, right? We're not trying to say that sometimes affairs are okay. That is not our conversation today. Our conversation is where have we constructed rules that don't reflect God anymore as a church? And when people from outside or even inside the church butt up against those, what's our response? Because in those moments, they're either going to see the character of God or they're not. They're going to see that God is good or they're not. They're going to see that God is compassionate and merciful or they're not. My favorite part of this whole story is verse three. So they make their initial allegation against Jesus. And Jesus' response is, haven't you read, you know? 
His response is, have you completely missed it to these Pharisees? They would have memorized the Old Testament by this point. He said, haven't you read that it was done here and here? Haven't you read that Messiah is going to come and that guy's me? Haven't you read that the purposes are more important than the practice in the first place and the law was put in place so you might see a compassionate and gracious God? Haven't you read the Bible? You've missed the point. You worship the thing and not the ultimate thing. You let the rule become your ruler instead of being ruled by a God who's good and compassionate and gracious. You have completely missed it, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that sometimes our religion looks like that too. And so it's good for us as a people that practice rules, because we do, as a people that live in discipline, because we should be. It's good for us to continually ask in a culture where legalism is right around the corner. How far have we gone down that road? And we do that by saying two things. One is, have we separated the rule from the ruler? And two is, do we value the practice over the principle behind it? Andy Stanley, he's a pastor. You've probably heard of him. He's got a small church in Atlanta. And um, I, I think he's phenomenal at his job. I think he's a really good communicator. I like a lot of his books. And he said this thing in a podcast years ago, years ago, that stuck with me. He says he has three or four different metrics that he uses when he is making big decisions. And he said the last one he always does, I've tried to use this in my life, is in this moment, he says the last thing I ask is what does love require of me right now? In this moment with the Pharisees, they should ask themselves, what does love require? When this guy got his hand healed, what if they asked, what does love require? Not in a superficial kind of 2023 context of love, which means do whatever you want and I'll love it. No, lo- love is the fulfillment, fighting for the fulfillment of others. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. And sometimes that's celebrating and sometimes that's in some ways convicting. Love is a complicated and true pointing people towards Jesus, the fighting for their fulfillment that's found in Christ. That's what love is. And Andy Stanley says that the question he asks in all his decisions in moments of conflict is, what does love require of me right now? And he, you know what? Jesus said the same thing when he said, this is what the law does. This is what it does. All of it's filled in two things, two statements. Love God with all you got, everything. Mind, body, will, emotion. And with everything else, love people like you love yourself. All the rules that we make should reflect the person and the personality and the character of God so that people see that he is good. That's what it means to grow up a little bit. To, to ask the question, where are we being regulatory for regulation's sake and where are we being regulatory for righteousness' sake? So, so this week, as we live out our faith, everything we do, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, whether it's family devotions, whether it's curfews, whether it's taking my seatbelt off as I'm getting to my house instead of on my driveway, are we doing it because it reflects the person, the nature, the character, the goodness of God? Or are we doing it because... It's a difference between righteousness and regulatory, between legalism and between the love of the God who's fighting for our flourishing. That's the difference between people seeing God as something that is holding us captive or instead setting us free. How we relate to rules, because they're not going anywhere. And here's why I think it's really important. is because I think the way that we interact with rules in our current culture with people that love Jesus and don't love Jesus, sets the tone for the goodness of God that's bigger than our rules. Because rules change sometimes, you know? And as a kid, if you find these rules and you grow up and you realize that maybe they change or maybe they're not true or maybe we've shifted our thinking societally, if, if we worship the ruler, we lose our faith. We lose our credibility in the character of God. If we worship God, then the rules can bend a little bit. Because here's what I know is that I'm 39 years old. I've got two-ish kids, one in a few weeks, and... I always thought that when I'd grow up, one of the rules of life was that by the time I'm this age, I would have life figured out. (laughs) 
you know what I don't have figured out? So many things. Um, and one thing I know is that I've never been more certain in my life about the goodness of God. I've never been more certain. But I've also never had less dogma around what it looks like to pursue that at the same time. Because there are rules that are good for our flourishing, but sometimes you've got to let go of those because you realize they're not reflecting the goodness and the personality and the kindness and the graciousness and the character of God. And when we think about our relationship to the regulatory, it should always revolve around the practice, it should always revolve around the ruler, it should always point people to the person of God. So as we live out our faith this week, and as it looks like some rules that you're not running away from, as it looks like righteousness, may we be a church that in all we do, in all the rules that we try to live by, might appoint people to the God who really gives life. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful one, that you establish a way for us. That you establish a way that has right ways to live and wrong ways to live because you love and you care for us and you don't want to see us hurt and in pain. My prayer this morning is that we live in the way that reflects the goodness of God in the regulations that we establish as a church. That fights for the flourishing of others and what we allow and what we don't allow. That always asks the question, where did this come from? What's the purpose that it might reflect the goodness of a God who's worthy of worship. So, so Holy Spirit, convict us this week in those moments that maybe we've forgotten what legalism is or where it's crept into our life. Or we've forgotten there's a bigger picture out there than just rules on a page. But a God who's worthy of following because he's good, because he heals, because he restores. It's a picture of what's to come. Might our lives reflect that too. Pray these things in his name. Amen.